Hello and welcome to Through Dangers Untold, Chapter 10. Helpful hands, or helping hands, should I say. Um, I'm your host, always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my glamorous co-host, Miss Emily Slade. That's me. And because we are talking about the helping hands, we've brought in some help of our own as we get to introduce the Lamb's very own master of puppets. It's Mr. Todd Liebenau. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us, Todd. And obviously, we, as we like to ask everyone when they came on, when it comes to the labyrinth, other than your much documented love of Jennifer Connolly, what is the lasting <laughs> appeal to you of labyrinth? Oh, well, there's lots of things. I, I've said this many times that I think Labyrinth is a movie that was made uh, because someone plugged some wires into my brain and just came up with something that I would like. Um because it, it's got so many different components that were important to me in my teenage years. Uh, you know, it's done by Jim Henson. And, of course, yeah. I have a huge interest in puppetry uh, produced by George Lucas, who's basically the guy that turned me into a movie fan because I went nuts over Star Wars when I was six. Um, you know, written by Terry Jones. You know, I loved Monty Python in my high school years. At the time that this movie came out, I was religiously watching Monty Python's Flying Circus, which aired on our local PBS channel late nights on Sunday nights. And so, you know, all those three things had me hooked. And then I went to the theater and saw Jennifer Connelly walk on the screen and I had my biggest teenage crush ever. So, you know, this movie has everything for me. Hmm. Yeah, it's either Jennifer Connelly or Phoebe Cates are the two that everyone seems to have when it comes to 80s cinema. So. Yeah, they yeah, were like the it yeah. girls of the 80s, weren't they? It's her and um, Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald. Molly yeah, Ringwald. The brat it... And Ali Sheedy had thrown there as well. Yeah. I make, I make no bones about it. You know, I was a lonely, awkward kid. I had crushes on lots of these celebrity actresses. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth Shue, you know, Leah Thompson, all of them. You know, so, yeah. That's There's definitely a, a running look between them when you when you sort of list out who the sort of the it girls of this era. They've got that sort of popular girl edge to them, but at the same time they're kind of the girl next door. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They they chose Jennifer Connelly for Labyrinth because they said she uh, balanced that perfect line between girlhood and womanhood, and I think they all sort of do that. And a lot of the women we mentioned were in Running for. For Sarah, so yeah, I think it's something that they were looking for in the perfect leading lady of the time, I guess, to appeal to the main demographic of cinema goers, which was the teenage boy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I went to the theater every weekend uh, back then in the 80s. Whatever was new, I, I was seeing it. Uh, I saw Labyrinth on opening day, the very first show at the Stratford oh, Square Mall. So, so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so jealous. And do you have a favourite year of the 80s? I know everyone tends to lean towards 83 or 87, so I don't know if you had a... Being obviously My, a child of the 80s is... Yeah. My year is 84. 84 okay. is is the big movie year for me. I, I always kind of say it was... You know, that was the movie that, that pushed me beyond Star Wars and turned me into a bigger movie fan. Because, you know, before that, it was all about Star Wars. And, you know, so 83 had Return of the Jedi, and so after that, there was, it was like, what? There's no more Star Wars? What do you mean? And, <laughs> and then came 1984 and just so many iconic movies of the 80s are 84 i mean you know that's the year of ghostbusters and indiana jones and the temple of doom the karate kid gremlins the terminator this is spinal tap uh purple rain a nightmare on elm street uh you know i could just keep going and going and going there's so many iconic movies from 84 so that's the year that i always look to as my my favorite of the decade 
Oh, definitely. So I know at the start of lockdown, we had a film for film trade off where I was pitting 99 against your 84. And I think it got to the point where we were like two days in where someone came on and was like, are you still going at this? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, I remember that. It seems like forever ago now. Oh, my gosh. But that was a, such a great way to waste those two days of just like it went we back on prison time when you got your arrow of outdoor time. So <laughs> I was I was out of work. I had nothing better to do. So yeah. <laughs> it amused me on the Internet. But, yeah, I appreciated that. But um, obviously, in our breakdown labyrinth, we are tonight looking at Helping Hands, another iconic moment within the film. And I think when you look at the film, really, from for magic dance magic dance is the sort of stepping off point and it's just iconic moment after iconic moment uh last episode we obviously looked at the four guards another great piece of monty python-esque trade-off there and obviously sarah's choice has now landed a leading down the chasm of uh the helping hands and this is a scene which is a really simple effect, but when you watch this as a child, you think that it's just one person's hands and don't realise it's four people's hands and you will probably end up doing some real mischief to your hands like I did, trying to replicate some of these <laughs> hand hand faces. But um, yeah, Todd, I mean, this was obviously one of the big scenes that you wanted to, to talk about. What is the lasting appeal of Helping Hands? Well, I, I think it is one of the scenes I most remember from the movie, and it's one that when they were in the early stages of promoting this, and we first started to see some of the trailers come out and some of the promotional materials, I remember them bringing this out because it was such an, a, a unique moment. And as someone who was very into Jim Henson's stuff, very into the art of puppetry myself, I'd look at this and just go, oh my gosh, that's, that's really clever. That's, that's, that's incredible what they're doing there. Uh, so yeah, this was kind of that moment of the movie that when I went and saw it for the first time, I was waiting for it because I'd heard about this thing where the, the hands come to life. Okay. It's interesting that this was the scene that they chose to use the promotion. Like, we have Bowie, we have a, a gorgeous Jennifer Connelly, we've got wall-to-wall puppets, and we're going to have the scene, with the, probably the one scene without puppets in, to use this promotional material. <laughs> and, and I kind of understand it's obviously got that fantastical sense to it. Um, Emily, mm. what do you sort of think about the Helping Hands? Because I think this is a scene you said you liked as well. So. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. When I first saw it, it was it really captured something in my imagination. I was so like blown away. I mean, I'm blown away every single scene in Labyrinth with the just majesty of the creativity that's thrown at you. And and this was a really great example. I mean, what a what a wonderful sequence of events to go from the guards to the helping hands and then to one of my absolute favorite scenes, the Oubliette, where um the ha- and I remember seeing the behind the scenes footage of the hands as Jim Henson was talking over and saying like, yeah, we put Jennifer in these really dangerous situations that we only realize now are dangerous looking back on them. And that really like stayed with me where I was like, that's so cool. Like this young woman who's my age when I was first watching Labyrinth is being like tossed around this movie set and put in all of these like cool stunt positions that you know, obviously it's not comparable to like whatever the fuck Tom Cruise was doing over on Mission Impossible or whatever, but it, it felt <laughs> like it was. Do you know what I mean? Like it was it was so badass to me that like like I'm not quite sure how they did it, um, because I never really want to fully break the magic, but in my head these actors are genuinely like holding Jennifer Connolly up, which I'm sure is not the case. But um and she's just so it must kinda hurt 
being in that sort of tunnel of hands and then having to like maneuver herself to face them every time she talks to them like the whole thing is just so cool and like everything with labyrinths it's there's so many levels to it from what you're seeing on the screen to then how they did it in real life and it's just a great great scene yeah i've no idea how they how they shot this um so I can't help you out there at uh, Todd. Well, I, you I, want to help clip one of the say, movie magic there, Todd? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to ruin things too much for for. <laughs> but there, I'll close my ears. La la la. There is some interesting footage they have of this. Uh, I think the DVD that I have at least has a yeah. a documentary, and and there's quite a section about the Helping Hands, and and like I said, they they did kind of pull this out and show some of the stuff as they were promoting it and such. But yeah, as I look at it, I go, wow, that does really look dangerous what they're doing here. Cause they had like a, a 40 foot tall shaft that, mm. you know, had all these, these hands and such. And, um, you know, she's attached to some wires and such yeah. so that they can lower her down safely and, 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 you know, relatively safely or, you know, I mean, make it slow and safe and all that kind of stuff. But it's still her, you know, it's 15 year old Jennifer Connelly, 40 feet off the ground. And, and with all this stuff, you know, that's, that's all over the place. I'm sure there were a lot of things to consider just, you know, with all the different things that were in the way of the wires and such. I, as you watch that behind the scenes footage, you go, yeah, this, if I were her parents, I'd be sitting there going, Oh my gosh, I can't believe what I'm letting my kid do here. You know? Something I especially love about how the way the scene shot is that every time that she stops and she's held by the hands, she's not in like a perfectly framed position. You see there's one particular shot where her legs just slightly lifted and it does give the impression that she's just like been suddenly stopped at this moment. And especially when you consider it's just a bunch of hands holding her, she wouldn't just have like this perfectly framed fall. She's basically being tossed down the hole by the hands. Um, And the fact that they're choosing whether she goes up or down well she's choosing and i find that so fun as well because another reason why labyrinth is one of the best movies ever made is because it's tinged with this real darkness um, much like all of the sort of 80s kids movies at the time and the helping hands really has it here where um you know she's fallen down this hole she's caught by them they give her the choice where they're like up or down and she's like, very logically and very sensibly, I guess as I'm pointed that way, I'll go down. And then, like, something snaps and it suddenly becomes so ominous where it's like, she chose <laughs> down, she chose down. Was that wrong? Too late now. And you're like, oh, fuck, like, where, where is she going? Like, is this now sudden death? Like, it's really fun. It's really engaging to watch. Um both as a teenager and as an adult of that just sort of like oh oh you did it again <laughs> same with the like car should have kept on going that way should have gone straight to that castle so many moments like that where you're like oh gotcha i always struggled with the choice she made though i mean even in that split second before the first one you know kind of goes she chose down i the first time watching it i was like no go up yeah. you know what's up yeah. there already you know, the, the, it's a bottomless pit the other way. I wouldn't have chose down. 
And I guess, you know, in the back of her mind, maybe she's got the, the she's seen the poster for the movie that she's in and where it's like nothing is as it seems. So she's like, maybe down is safe. Maybe down is like the ground, at least. And then I can get my bearings. Whereas up would be, I guess it'd just be kind of anticlimactic and awkward. Like I would feel awkward asking for them to take me up. I would I wouldn't feel comfortable asking these helping hands. I'd be like, um yeah okay uh yeah i guess let's go up and then they'd be like oh and then they have to like <laughs> kind of push you and they're like oh shit can, do you have an ankle like out 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 okay okay yeah yeah keep going and jennifer Connelly's like oh god i'm so sorry i just like i, I just really don't want to go yeah if you could just out okay yeah and it would just be so long and it would be like most of the movie of her like crawling out of this helping hands tunnel so <laughs> i don't know well you, you bring up an interesting point there which is something that i i've <laughs> always kind of struggled with on this scene is that just watching it it's a little bit uncomfortable just because I, i'm going here we have this very attractive teenage girl and there's all these hands all over her and i'm thinking if i was one of the puppeteers i'd I'd be afraid that I'd do something wrong. Let's just put it that way, because you can't I see what you're you doing. Would, you know, if you were filming in 2021, you'd be hyper aware of that. I think mm. filming in the 80s, I'd like, oh, who's to say? But I know what you mean. I'd like to think that they would be aware that that's potentially going to happen and everyone would be briefed and just sort of like, don't take the piss and like, let's all just try and do this safely. But then also it wouldn't have been at the forefront of everyone's mind. They would like, they, you know, the Me Too movement hadn't happened. They're not going to be like worried yeah. that Jennifer Connelly is going to get hurt or anything in that way. I think also well, when you look at the positions of the hands, they are in very, they're in the sort of positions where they are around her, basically at the sides of her arms and, and they are a fair distance because it's sort of the lower portion of her arms that they're holding. And I imagine that when they shot this, you're going to have people with their hands out where you drop somebody because that's going to hurt like, uh, nobody's business mm. so they probably like lowered it down you put the hands in and then we shoot we shoot the scene and we do what we need to do and then we can like lower her down again or raise her up i don't know what they were doing with her but yeah um yeah well some some of the hands are real you know with with puppeteers you know operating them and some of them are just flopping there you know i mean if you really watch it slowly and stuff you can start to pick out uh, you know which ones actually have uh, performers inside them but yeah i mean i was thinking about you know one of the the things that the muppet performers always do is they've got monitors and stuff so they can watch and see what they're doing but in a sequence like this where there's there i'm sure there were you know a dozen or so at least and probably more puppeteers in there all around this big 40 foot tall shaft and you know i mean th i'm sure there weren't enough monitors to go around i'm sure that <laughs> some of them were performing mm. completely blind yeah, I just love as well the fact that all the helping hands are all very British. I know we're also <laughs> yes. shooting at Pinewood, but <laughs> yeah. it's a very British tunnel. <laughs> I guess it's that sort I, of I was thinking vibe that... of when you do a silly voice, you go <laughs> British. Okay. <laughs> well, they... I, that's uh, I, I was thinking they sound a lot like Monty Python characters, to be honest with you. Yeah. you know, which, which, again, you got the Terry Jones influence there. And I, I guess my understanding is this was a scene, too, that that, you know, was really kind of Terry Jones's brainchild where he, you know, he came up with this idea of, oh, it'd be cool if there were these hands. And then they started talking to her. He, he kind of imagined it like, um, 
you know, there was this ventriloquist called Senior Wences who used to have a puppet that was basically just his hand wearing a wig. And, uh, you know, he kind of pitched this idea and then Henson and his crew turned it into something, you know, completely different and all that. But, you know, I, I always, as I watch the scene and those voices, I go, yeah, it sounds like, you know, John Cleese and Graham Chapman and folks like that doing the voices, you know, so. Yeah, no, definitely. I also really get a sort of Jean Cocteau, La Belle La Bette vibe as well, you know, when she's going down the corridor and all of the hands in the wall is like are like pulling out the chandeliers and stuff. It's very iconic. It's then reused in like Legend and Phantom of the Opera. Um, so then, almost tying back into your other point um, about the safety and stuff, like, does it also reflect the 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 labyrinth and its danger as a um, Jareth's omnipotent presence where it's like he can see everything he can feel everything there are eyes in the walls there are hands in the walls um it's not safe and it's definitely not safe for Sarah and and then it's that juxtaposition of the silly Monty Python voices with these quite dangerous uh servants of Jareth almost yeah yeah kind of brings us back to way back to chapter six left or right and we have the eyes in the wall and it's the, the mm. labyrinth is a living breathing thing and the helping hands are very much another entity of this although sarah's encounter with them is just really a series of just bad decisions on her part i mean she takes the wrong the wrong path um offered by the worm so she could have gone straight to the council but instead goes deeper into the labyrinth she chooses the wrong door with the four guards and now with the helping hand, she essentially chooses the wrong path for them. And we keep seeing her make wrong choice after wrong choice. And really until uh, she meets with the wise man and she starts to get a few right. And it's it's almost like she learns what she's supposed to be doing in the labyrinth. Because up until this point, she's essentially just Forrest Gumping her way through this. Um, or being bailed out by Hoggle, who just seems to be lumbered in to her quest for whatever reason. I don't know what he's done wrong, but... Well, he does it, right. You talk He's about saying. her making wrong choice after wrong choice, and I, I keep thinking, I don't know if there is a right choice in this scene. I, no, I, think I would that agree. If she, if she went up, we should probably have something just as bad waiting for her. Yeah. <laughs> have a cup of tea with the worm. That's a great choice. Yeah. It doesn't don't help you you're getting your brother back, but you know. It, again, it's, funny, it's another it? British like, response, I, isn't it, to something facing a problem? She's... I think she's set up to fail as best she can. Um, you know, not to skip ahead too much, but Jareth's about to talk about how the fact that she shouldn't even have gotten to where she currently is because she should have given up by now because the labyrinth is set against her. So, you know, the doors, was it the wrong door or did both doors lead to sudden death? Like, Mm-hmm. Or did the other door lead to like the gaping wide mouth of a monster? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't know, and we'll never know. Or, or what, did the two doors lead to the same place? Like, we don't know. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's no such thing as a right or wrong decision. There's just the labyrinth, and y- you just have to keep going. I guess mm-hmm. is the moral yeah. of that story. Much like the ongoing. Uh, inescapable uh, march of puberty and death, <laughs> <laughs> which is also what this movie's about. 
Um, when it comes to the helping hands, I mean, obviously, when you look at this idea that, you know, the hands are talking, that could be done very simply. But what we see here instead is, is quite actually quite magical in a way. The fact you have multiple hands come together and they form these really complex faces. We see like a fist becomes a nose and then two hands either side become like the mustache. And the way that these hands move, it's how someone would actually talk. I just love those the amount of detail they put into it, much like anything Henson does with uh, the mm. way when you look at how these puppets like talk. And we've mentioned before about how they like uh, have those little reactions when they uh, are listening for it to say the right words, and they take that little gasp when you see their eyes grow wider. Um, mm. And it's the same with the helping hands, just like the level of detail. And you're just looking at people's hands that have been painted green, but what five hands together can just create in our mind is just absolutely extraordinary. Even now, even in these days, we're all like old and jaded. It still has that magic to it. <laughs> yeah, well, they put a lot of work into coming up with a variety of different faces. I, I remember when I first heard the idea, I thought, okay, well, you know, how many faces can you do out of some hands? Well, they could do an awful lot. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting things they come up with. And again, as you look at the behind the scenes stuff, there's a lot that didn't show up in the final film. You see them playing with things and making some faces that look pretty cool that they didn't actually end up using in the film. Um, but I love the way that the faces all kind of, uh, you know, have this recognizable aspect, but then also are somewhat grotesque as well. I mean, it just kind of plays into that theme of the whole scene where they're, you know, it's it's all, you know, kind of gradually gets more dark and sinister as it goes. And just the look of these hands in general, I mean, th there is a bit more to it than just the hands. They're, they're wearing, you know, these are latex so that they're a little bit bigger than a natural hand. And and I've, I've found that that actually helps the scene every puppeteer friend of mine when they saw this scene was like "Ooh, we need to try that and i've seen many <laughs> performers try to do their own version of it and it doesn't work as well because number one they're not wearing these large latex hands like they are in this scene and secondly most of the performers i know that are using it trying are trying to do it in a stage setting and it, it's just it's too distant on a stage setting this is something that really yeah benefits from being up close in the camera um but yeah i mean it's it's one of the most creative bits of puppetry i think you know that that henson ever did i mean it's such a simple concept but in true henson form they just take it to an extreme that you know his creative mind was was just the perfect thing to do that you know it really is it's almost like something that you'd come up with with your sort of theater troupe at, at, at like university where it's like go and devise something and they're like oh what if we like put our hands together and made faces through the wall or whatever like it's so simple and it, it seems so obvious but it's so magical when put in the hands way of jim henson this is something you tried in theater school emily <laughs> we try <laughs> everything it's very specific um <laughs> <laughs> like story to tell that so it just having done a lot of devising it's very much like the kind of bullshit that you'll pull out at like fucking nine o'clock at night in the rehearsal room and you're just like oh god i don't know what if we did this <laughs> um kind of thing and you then you try it and you do it and you're like actually that's a great idea and then you have another red bull and then you like do some more stuff but it it feels so professional and it feels so legitimate here from such a simple idea that's probably been tried and failed across the country um, 
over several years. Well, I, I have tried it in puppetry workshops, and it's tough. Uh, yeah. You know, you're you're um, you know you're having to twist your arms in in you know odd positions to get the angle right because the the way that your hands you know like if the back side of your hand is not what works well for this it's the front side that gets a better image trying to do a mouth or things like that so you're having to turn other directions or do one half of a mouth and another puppeteer do the other half of a mouth and it's it's awkward and difficult you're trying to make you know three different brains here make it look like one uh as you're creating this this character so yeah this is this is not easy stuff it's a simple looking concept but it's it's very difficult from a puppetry standpoint yeah yeah i always was obsessed with the crab face that you see right at the end yes with the beady eyes and the amount of time i'd like spent like contorting my hands to like make the little beady eyes because i was sure it's one hand and I think between that and numerous skateboard injuries is why my hands are so screwed up now. So, um, but yeah, I would. I'd my just... favorite's the one with the mustache. Mine too. Mine too. Because <laughs> the hands rise and fall. It's... I like the uh, one which has got the, the bulbous boxer's nose as well. And it's like, come on, yeah. it's not a difficult decision because everyone's apparently lives in the 18th century in this tunnel. Um, they're not all just British, they're all like Dickensian characters, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, I love how sort of drawn out the dialogue is to make sure we get to see as many hands as possible, so it's like, yeah. which way do you want to go? Yes, which way? <laughs> that's that's one of the things about the scene that's bugged me a little bit, because yeah, you watch it and it's clear that they put extra little lines in there so they could do more faces, and also, yeah, the delivery of them is a bit more slow and deliberate. And I'm sure that's because, like I said, the puppetry was really difficult. It's it's tough mm. to do this type of lip sync. So they had to talk in a little bit more drawn out and deliberate way. Uh, so, you know, I, it bugs me a little, but not enough to, to you know, yeah. not like the scene. So. <laughs> to override it. <laughs> it's funny you I, like, um... mentioned him looking at it from that technical standpoint, because whenever I watched it, I assumed because, you know, it's this ethereal sort of being the this the voice is like being drawn out of the uh the ether that that's why it's got that sort of delay and why the movements are the way that yeah, they are like but it uh needs to find a host before it can say it's next yeah game. exactly like the hive um, spits ventriloquism out yeah i think well, it's, that's this... an interesting concept you just brought up there El, what you called it a being and i thought okay so is the is the the shaft of hands several creatures or is it one creature yeah i'm just i look at the problem is that being some from some of the childhood trauma i got from like 80s cinema and stuff i look at this tunnel and then i get flashbacks to uh the time masters and those big tentacle things that come down from the ceiling and uh snatch that uh delightful creature up and it's like oh no <laughs> and then i remind myself it's like they're just hands they're just hands happy place uh hands but yeah hands which took me a few viewings. It, it wasn't until a few years ago, and bearing in mind I've been watching this every day since I was 13, it, it was only a few years ago that I, I actually clocked that one of the later hands, when it says she chose down, has like two hands pointing down yeah. either side of it, and then another one after all, afterwards as well has a similar thing, and it, it like all of a sudden I was watching it, and I was like... <gasps> It has hands. Yeah. Um, as hands. 
I think there's a couple of them that that have that. And I, I took note of that today as I was rewatching the scene as well. And I thought, you know what? I think watching this so many times in pan and scan, you know, on VHS in the 80s, I think a lot of those hands off to the side that are gesturing along with the faces were cut out of the scene uh, in the mm-hmm. in the, you know, the non widescreen version. So. Yeah, yay, yeah. Uh, letterboxed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they've got, I also like the, when they, like, she chooses down, they just suddenly turn into gremlins. Because I think everyone <laughs> wanted their gremlins moment to the 80s. I think when gremlins came out, there were so many films that tried to, like, have their gremlins moment. You had, like, films like Ghoulies, which had crammed in this cheap looking puppet because, you know, gremlins made money. And you had Garbage Pail Kids and <laughs> anything that could, like, emulate a gremlin. They were like, yeah, cram it in. Get some of that gremlin money. And you see it yeah. with like the way they shut the trap door and it's like hey <laughs> And it's like, why do they care the doors close? She's not climbing yeah. back up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's for dramatic effect, you know. <laughs> Besides, they got hands, they you know, they need a chance to slam a door. So, you know, it's yeah, makes it's their like, lives yeah. interesting. I mean, what do they do when they haven't got people wandering into their shaft? I mean, do they just sit there and talk to themselves or they I play rock, paper, scissors, you know, like things like that. <laughs> so, now I just want to see that scene. They get the knitting out, they have a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. And they, like, go back and it's like, and oh then, yeah, totally. Like, totally. like, no one visits the labyrinth, so it's been like, it's been like a hundred years since they were last used as their thing, which is why they're so overly enthusiastic here. And they, like, drop everything (laughs) to catch her. And then they're like, which way do you want to go? Yes, which way? (laughs) Like, everyone wants to look in. (laughs) How many years has it been? You have to wonder. You know, it's not like every day they pluck some kid out to go through the labyrinth. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't imagine many humans have gone through the labyrinth before either. Like, we'll talk about the sort of warning stones later on where they haven't said it in such a long time. Um. But, like, where is the labyrinth? And, like, what what unfortunate creature stumbles upon it often, if at all? And, you know, or is it just humans that only visit there? Um, because I can imagine, like, little, just little creatures from nearby, like, fantasy neighbourhoods must wander in by accident and then be like, shit, and end up having to, like, deal with all of these, stupid creatures and they're like please please can i just go home and they're like which way do you want to go (laughs) so what Um, like the fawn from pans and jared holmes from like a labyrinth open day so it's like we're like (laughs) labyrinth owners from around the kingdom can come together and trade stories and hold workshops and getting the most out of your goblin labor and uh, fairy control that sort of thing so jareth could promote the place as an escape room and make tons of money he could (laughs) Oh my god. Oh my god. Basically take my money, give me a labyrinth escape room. <laughs> Why isn't that a thing? Give me a labyrinth themed escape room. Take well, my- we've Well, we've already like covered on a previous episode um. that the labyrinth isn't the best magical kingdom to live in. I think we decided legend was going to be the best kingdom to live in. For sure. Uh, Todd, have you got any preferred magical kingdoms you want to live in? Like Kroll or... <laughs> oh my goodness. Never. Magical kingdom to live in. I don't know. I mean, Oz pre- seems pretty sweet. 
I mean, you know, once you get rid of the Wicked Witches and stuff, yeah. you know, it's it's not too yeah. shabby. Movie Oz. I wouldn't want yeah. to live in Book Oz. Well, Book Oz is, like, all over the place. <laughs> I love the Oz books. I went through them with my daughter when she was really young. And oh. I, I think they're they're a lot of fun. But it's it's interesting to read, like, the Oz books and then read, like, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Because those ones you go, well, this author had a plan. L. Frank Baum yeah. had no plan. You know, he just, whenever the ideas came up, he's like, well, this sounds good, you know. <laughs> That'll do. Yeah. It's just, just doing all the right things there, Todd. You know, reading Oz to your daughter, getting them into the monkeys rather than the Beatles. It's just all <laughs> oh, positives my, my, here. My kids love the Beatles, too. But, you yeah, know, no, I, we, we, we made sure to get the... Uh, you know the the season one set of the monkeys, so we could train them right on that as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> and then when they get a little older, show them head and go. Yeah, this is what they were all about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, it's like you know that band you really like. This is what their true nature was. <laughs> yeah. The Beatles' acid years had nothing on what the monkeys were in the later years. It's yeah, in the Beach Boys as well. If you, if you think Magical Mystery Tour is weird, yeah, get, go get a copy ahead and uh, then talk yeah. to me. Nice. <laughs> um, anything else to discuss in this this scene? You know my child's stimming away. I get bored. Like <laughs> I think you hit on it pretty well. I didn't. I didn't realize till you know I was getting ready for the show how short of a scene it is. I was like, oh, it's oh, it's only yeah. a minute long. Oh my gosh, you know, but it's still one of my favorites. Yeah, and it, it's so impactful. And I imagine it's one of those things that you go away from the labyrinth and you can sort of remember it. It's like an earworm for the eyes, an eye worm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's also a really underrated scene in that respect because when we think of like the iconic moments in the labyrinth, I know everybody loves the. Uh, masquerade ball and we all love magic dance because it's um, the sexiest and, thing ever to have been on screen yeah, yeah and it's like when we scrape when we get rid of those i think helping hands is like the next one to go to it's either that or uh the fireys mm-hmm. or like um who goes there which for myself is like i think the goblin the siege of the goblin city is like my favorite moment in the scene and when i when we talk, first started doing this podcast emily was like no that's like one of the weakest scenes in the film yeah so. that's why you fast forward <laughs> Um, or the Rolling Stones, as the DVD chapter calls it, because I love a pun. <laughs> Great. Um, well, that brings us to the end of tonight's uh, chapter. Thank you, as always, for listening. Todd, if people would like to come and find your words, where's the best ways to find you? Well, my uh, my main blog is called Forgotten Films, so that's at forgottenfilmcast.wordpress.com. Uh, I have a podcast, which is called The Forgotten Filmcast, uh, somebody named Emily was a guest on there recently, so you know you can check out that episode among others. Um, I have a second podcast which is called Walt Sent Me, which is all about the wide world of Disney movies, and by that I mean Disney under any of their umbrellas. So you know, like on one episode we might be talking about a animated classic, like you know. Little Mermaid or something like that. And then on another episode, we might talk about something that came out under, like, well, our most recent episode is one of their Hollywood pictures release, Super Mario Brothers. Yes, it's a Disney movie, (laughs) folks. So, you know, we cover anything and everything that uh, came out under Disney. So, yeah, search for that where you find uh, your podcasts as well. It's called Walt Sent Me. 
Awesome. Uh, links, right. as always, are going to be in the description below, so uh, make sure you check that out. Um, but uh, thank you, Todd, for coming on and providing us some puppetry insights into such a, an interesting scene. I didn't realize there was so much depth to this. I just thought it was a bunch of people with their hands painted green, so I call <laughs> myself educated after tonight's episode. There is plenty of depth. 40 feet worth of depth, remember. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, thank you uh, again for coming on. Thank you to my co-host Emily. Thank you. And uh, we will be back next time with Emily's favourite chapter of all time, chapter eleven, the Obelique. So make sure you join us for that. But until then, good night. Mm-hmm.